And these news values of timeliness, unexpectedness, cultural proximity mean that we don't get a lot of news coverage of humanitarian affairs. And that's why only 12 news organisations out of 20,000 covered it. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, about six years ago, I received a request for an interview from an academic in the United Kingdom named Martin Scott. He was doing some journalism-related research and had a few questions for me. Now, as an aside, I spend most of my days firing off emails asking people if I can interview them, so my default is to always say yes when people want some of my time. This was a while ago. I sort of forgot about it until two weeks back when I received a copy of a short book titled Humanitarian Journalists Covering Crises from a Boundary Zone by Martin Scott and co-authors Mel Bunce and Kate Wright, all of whom are academics. The book identifies and defines what the authors call humanitarian journalism. This combines conventional journalistic norms like objectivity with certain key humanitarian principles like the moral equivalence of all lives regardless of geography. And the book explicitly cites my work as well as that of a small number of other journalists who do what they called humanitarian journalism. I must say, reading this book was really revelatory to me in that I saw reflected back in academic prose the kind of work that I've been doing with this podcast for the last 10 years. And I'm definitely going to lean into the phrase humanitarian journalist. I'm proud that this podcast has been one of just a few publications to pioneer a new kind of journalism that is starting to gain traction. I'll post a link in the show notes to where you can freely download this book if you'd like to learn more. Now here is my conversation with Martin Scott, Associate Professor in Media and Global Development at the University of East Anglia and co-author with Mel Bunce and Kate Wright of Humanitarian Journalists Covering Crises from a Boundary Zone. So, Martin, I was looking back through old emails and I realized it was back in 2017 when you interviewed me 
as part of your research for this book. What kinds of questions were you testing when you interviewed me and others six years ago at this point? The premise of the book and the research and why I spoke to you all those years ago was to try and better understand the problems of mainstream news coverage of humanitarian affairs. I guess a lot has been written about, and there's a kind of long-standing critique of the way that conventional news coverage often covers humanitarian crises. You know, it's episodic. It's kind of short-term. Think of the Syria-Turkey earthquake recently. There was good coverage, but for a very short period of time, and only on certain kinds of crises. And there's a kind of certain humanitarian story that mainstream conventional journalism tells about humanitarian crises. And so the motivation of the book was a kind of dissatisfaction with that. A kind of a lot of research, I think, starts from that point. There's a problem with this. It's not telling rich enough, diverse enough stories about humanitarian affairs consistently enough either. And so that's what we started to research. Can I just have you more fully flesh out that critique as you see it of how more mainstream publications tend to cover humanitarian issues? Because it really is, I think, one of the central critiques of your research. So I guess the best example of this, to start off the book, we did a keyword search of 20,000 news organizations around the world, and which ones of them covered four particular humanitarian crises and events. And out of 20,000 news organizations, only 12 covered all four of these humanitarian issues and crises. And my answer to your question is it's telling which ones covered it. The ones that covered it were the news agencies, that is AFP, AP and Reuters and Xinhua News Agency. And these news agencies, it's their job to cover international affairs because they sell their coverage of international affairs to everyone else. Most news organisations get their international news coverage from one of these news agencies. So it's no surprise that they covered it. In addition, you've got the big, often government-backed broadcasters or indirectly-backed BBC World Service, Voice of America, several others also covered these humanitarian crises. And what's telling, therefore, is how so few news organisations out of 20,000 covered these important humanitarian crises, the ongoing conflict in South Sudan, the World Humanitarian Summit, an earthquake, and one other. These are important issues not being covered because it doesn't suit the commercial logic that underpins most news organisations. Most news organisations are funded by advertising and perhaps by reader revenues, and news about humanitarian affairs doesn't sell. It doesn't attract large audiences. It doesn't attract advertising revenue. It's expensive to produce. So the commercial logics that underpin most journalism don't lend themselves to consistent, informed, contextualized news coverage of humanitarian affairs. In addition, most news values, that is the kind of ideas that journalists use to decide what news is, news values like timeliness, like unexpectedness, like cultural proximity, how relevant something is perceived to be for their audience. Most of these news values don't also mean that they don't lend themselves to covering humanitarian crises. So the reason that we see some crises in the media and not others is because of this commercial logic, which dictates that unless mainstream audiences are perceived to be interested in it, we won't cover it. 
And these news values of timeliness, unexpectedness, cultural proximity mean that we don't get a lot of news coverage of humanitarian affairs. And that's why only 12 news organisations out of 20,000 covered it. The answer you get from journalists when you say to them, yes, but why are you only covering the Syria-Turkey earthquake? There are also other very important humanitarian crises happening around the world. The answer you often get to this is that, well, I'm afraid it's just not news. It's not newsworthy. And so the book comes from a sense of, that that's just not good enough. And, you know, I was gratified to see you list my work as part of the small group of journalists and journalistic entities that do consistently cover humanitarian issues and humanitarian affairs. Is there like a one or two sentence definition of humanitarian journalism that you routinely cite? There isn't, but I can give it a go in a couple of ways. Humanitarian journalists are communication professionals who combine both journalistic and humanitarian norms. So they pursue impartiality, neutrality, and truth. At the same time, they seek to demonstrate that all lives are equal and add value to mainstream news coverage where they can. That's kind of one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it are humanitarian journalists intentionally differ from mainstream journalists by trying to cover neglected crises that mainstream journalism doesn't, by citing the kinds of voices that are often missed from mainstream journalism, and just in general adding value to mainstream news coverage of humanitarian crises that's often missing, whether that's through context or a new angle or an underreported crisis or through missing voices. They add value to mainstream coverage of humanitarian crises. I would be interested to learn from you how you came to define what we do. It's funny. I don't know if I should use like the first person or the third person here. (laughs) How did you come to define what we humanitarian journalists do as humanitarian journalism? Okay, so you mentioned earlier the interview we did back in 2017. That's the next bit of the story, yeah? So we do this keyword search and we find out that there are some news organisations, small ones covering these things, like UN Dispatch and others doing these things. And so the starting point here is that, well, I asked you a bunch of questions about what you do and why you do it and how you make your decisions. And your question to me is, how do we come to define this humanitarian journalism? And that was from speaking to journalists like yourself. Some journalists gave us very different answers to the questions we asked about how do you decide what's newsworthy? Why do you choose to cover this crisis and not this? How long does it take to publish a story? How important is timeliness to you? Why are your stories so much longer than most other people's? What kind of news hooks are important to you? When we asked these questions of over 100 journalists, we wanted to distill the key features of what they were saying. And I guess there are a number of key features of what yourself and others said. Timeliness mattered less. Humanitarian journalists are motivated by a desire to cover crises that other news organisations weren't covering, not to beat them to a scoop, but because Mm -hmm. they weren't being covered and it was important to do so. And that's That's in some ways a kind of opposite of a journalistic value. I've decided to cover events that all other journalists say are not newsworthy. You know, if you read these transcripts, you speak to enough people, it seemed to us that a combination of humanitarian norms 
that is all lives are equal and a kind of added value? How can I indirectly alleviate suffering in ways that I am able to contribute in ways that others might not be able to? In a, Combined with journalistic norms of independence, impartiality, objectivity, a degree of timeliness. And so I guess that's how we did it. We spoke to people and tried to summarize what they told us. I'm gonna say I'm like smiling and laughing to myself over here, like having you reflect back to me what I do in words that I often use like verbatim when I'm talking to other journalists. <laughs> I usually say to them, honestly, I don't care about like scooping people on a story. That's not what drives me. I, I care about shining a spotlight on undercovered global issues. I care about covering stories that other mainstream outlets don't because they are inherently important because of the impact that these stories have on lives around the people, lives that aren't reflected on terribly often in more conventional media sources. And it was just honestly like wild for me to read in academic prose, the kind of work that I do. And, and just hearing you now like restate it to me is just, it's just interesting. So here's here's another question along those lines. So, okay, there, there's a small group of us that do this consistently, but like, are we impactful, right? This is like always one question I have. You know, our audience or the audience of this show is not like huge, right? We're in the top maybe 5% of all podcasts, but there's a huge difference between the top 1% of podcasts and the top 5% of podcasts, right? That top 1% of podcasts, you're able to routinely, you know, make lots of money selling ads about like website development services or underwear brands or like Casper mattresses, you know, the if you listen to the top 1% podcast, sure. you'll you'll know the kind of advertising that you're able to used to sustain your work. But even though the audience is not huge, are we impactful? There's all sorts of kinds of impacts. One is on a general public opinion, public awareness. And okay, yes, UN Dispatch, the New Humanitarian and others don't shape general public opinion. But a lot of the people who do listen to this podcast and others are influential in the sector. And so you can trace impact our other research has been about the impact of media on aid allocations. And we spoke to a lot of senior civil servants responsible for humanitarian aid budgets. And sometimes those civil servants, those policymakers, are influenced by mainstream media coverage if there's enough of it, if there's this kind of tidal wave of media coverage that can sway their aid allocations. But they also told us that more specialist news organisations like your own and others in the field can also shape policy making just through one or two articles because they use those articles in depth, explanatory, detailed, contextualised, informed analysis of humanitarian affairs can be used by policymakers kind of a signal as evidence to persuade ministers to make in more informed humanitarian decisions rather than politicised decisions. So in other words, a civil servant would say to us, look, my minister wants me to give more aid to this country and not that country, even though the level of unmet need doesn't require it. But I could wave an article from the New Humanitarian or DevEx in front of them and say, look, I'm afraid, minister, that would be a bad idea because look at this explanation here. Honestly, I have anecdotes like that from listeners who write to me who say, you know, I, I work for so-and-so senator and listen to your episode on so-and-so crisis in, in Africa, and I brief them on like 
this angle of that crisis. That happens to me actually fairly frequently. I, I, I get feedback like that. And I guess I'd say, does it matter? I guess why I think humanitarian journalism matters is because it demonstrates that journalism is not a fixed thing. There are other ways of covering humanitarian crises. There are stark inequalities in which crises get covered and which don't. And if nothing else, I would want this book to be able to say, it's not good enough to say, I'm afraid that's just not newsworthy. Just saying that it's not newsworthy is not a sufficient answer because here's a bunch of journalists who are professional journalists who do regard it as newsworthy. Newsworthiness is a construct. Another way is possible. And that's just as a legitimate impact as being able to trace a causal line from one of the reports you produced to a policy decision. That's great. But the very existence of this in journalism is important as well. One other thing that so deeply resonated from your work and from your study is how you explain that when possible, we humanitarian journalists use the lens of solutions journalism to cover the stories that we cover. This is something, you know, I aspire to do as often as possible on the podcast. Like not every episode kind of lends itself to a solutions journalism frame, but if there's even like a small opening in which I could use that solutions journalism frame, I try to do it. And just briefly, solutions journalism, for those who are not aware, is covering not just a problem, but like how you solve the problem. So listeners will know that I often, when I'm covering a crisis, I'll include questions and a thread about how do we overcome this crisis, not just dwell on the fact of the crisis. That to me was, I think, a really important insight in, in your work. Let me say a word about where that comes from. What we argue in the book is that humanitarian journalists have usually deliberately opted out of playing the rules of the mainstream journalism game. Often, a lot of humanitarian journalists we spoke to used to work for mainstream news organisation, BBC, BBC World Service, Reuters, or, or, or whatever. But a dissatisfaction with the norms, the conventional rules of journalism, or what dictates something to be newsworthy, they're dissatisfied by it. And so rather than just pursuing conventional good journalism, it's still journalism. The downside of this is kind of a, a degree of loss of credibility. So the new humanitarian is not the BBC. The BBC is often regarded as a kind of the um, best example of good journalism. And the new humanitarian is not the BBC. However, by working for the new humanitarian, you have a far greater flexibility and freedom in deciding what you regard as important, what people need to know about, what perspectives are being ignored and should be covered. And so there's a pro and a con here to being a humanitarian journalist. And that's where solutions journalism comes in. When you're no longer playing the mainstream journalism game of being good journalism in the sense of, uh, of the BBC journalism, you can be a little more flexible and free with the kind of norms you conform to. And that gives you the freedom to pursue solutions journalism, if you wish. You know, I, yeah, there's great value in solutions journalism. Not all humanitarian journalists would do that. Some would take the freedom that they have to be at the boundaries of the journalistic field to do that. Others experiment with formats. They experiment with different ways of communicating what they do. Others 
take a more relaxed approach about timeliness. They kind of very, you know, not, not particularly concerned at all with having a, a a contemporary news hook. They're the more analytical pieces. So humanitarian journalists vary in the ways that they they make use of their freedom. And solutions journalism is certainly one of them, particularly because it allows you to achieve that kind of impact orientation I was talking about earlier. It's solutions oriented, gets you a little closer to trying to ensure that your journalism has impact. So one of your conclusions is that humanitarian journalism is not yet a defined field of journalism in the same way that, say, like investigative journalism or sports journalism is. So in the spirit of solutions journalism, what can be done to make humanitarian journalism its own sort of more widely adopted and widely known field? Yeah, very good. And I think solutions journalism is a good example of this. Solutions journalism has become institutionalized, has become a thing, you know, an accepted thing. We know what solution journalism refers to because it has a kind of field building governance to it, a kind of uh, uh, the solutions journalism network. That's how you legitimize solutions journalism. You have an umbrella organization that funds it, acknowledge it, gives awards to it, names it, has a newsletter for it, does training for it. That's what I mean by governance of a field. So that's what you need. If if humanitarian journalism were to become its own subfield, its own kind of recognized, established field in itself of humanitarian journalism, you need several things. And probably the most important is some kind of governance actor, uh, the Humanitarian Journalists Network, which has a newsletter, it gives awards, it has funding. That's how you field build. I guess just a qualification to that, though, is when you start building a field, if we, if we were to label the field of humanitarian journalism, suddenly you decide, what is good humanitarian journalistic practice? What should it mean? Should it mean to do this or this or this? To what extent is solutions journalism central to humanitarian journalism. When you start to institutionalize and build fields around these things, you kind of have to make decisions about those. It's not for me to decide whether or not solutions journalism should be part of humanitarian journalism, but that's how you would build a field around it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned funding because using the example of solutions journalism, if I'm not mistaken, Mackenzie Scott is like a big funder of the Solutions Journalism Network. Another conclusion of your book is that we in the humanitarian journalism field exist in like a constant state of funding precarity, Correct, which is true. And it, it would seem to me that what we would need, therefore, is just like a Mackenzie Scott-like figure to adopt this field and make it a bigger and more perhaps mainstream approach to journalism. Yeah, I, th- I think I certainly think that's that's one way it could happen with presumably obvious dangers as to if you have one particular funder, you know, deciding it, making it their kind of pet project, then perhaps they end up being the one shaping what that field looks like. I guess I, I'd see another path to it, which is if you go to the New Humanitarians website and you click on their list of funders, that list is in recent years has become a lot longer. When we started this research, uh, the New Humanitarian, just as a well-known example, the New Humanitarian had funding from maybe three bilateral donors and maybe one foundation, maybe two. Now it gets funding from about 10 different foreign ministries 
of governments, plus foundations, plus reader revenue, plus others. I think you need a critical mass of different kinds of donors. Yes, foundation funding is important, but it's always really been too small, too ad hoc, and not enough foundations. But uh, the idea that uh, the Swiss, Sweden, the UK, Canada, the US, Norway, Germany, and several other governments are funding specialist international news or underwriting it seems to me that's how you field build that there are enough donors who now accept that mainstream news values about humanitarian affairs don't produce good consistent coverage of a wide range of humanitarian crises and that in a context in which humanitarian need is rapidly increasing i gather the number of people in need of humanitarian assistance has gone up 25% this year compared to last year the idea that humanitarian need is growing at a time where our news coverage about it is so consistently poor, I think means that enough donors are increasingly realising that that's not good enough. We need to do something about that. And I think this kind of list of donors now willing to fund or underwrite news coverage of humanitarian affairs, that to me is a better sustainable solution for more independent journalism about humanitarian affairs. But I guess I wouldn't want all that money to go to the new humanitarian. It's important that there is a wide range of news organisations in this field. Plurality matters. Martin, thank you so much for your time and for your research and your book. Just thank you. Thank you for helping me better understand what it is I do. You are very welcome. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.